Chapter 9, Part 1 of The History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution by Rev. James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Church in Ireland during the reigns of Mary and Elizabeth, 1553-1603. The death of Edward VI, 6 July 1553, and the accession of Queen Mary put an end for the time being to the campaign against the Catholic Church. The party of the Earl of Northumberland made a feeble attempt in Ireland, as they had done in England, to secure the succession for Lady Jane Grey, but their efforts produced no effect. On the 20th July, the Privy Council in England sent a formal order for the proclamation of Queen Mary, together with an announcement that she had been proclaimed already in London as Queen of England, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, and on earth Supreme Head of the Churches of England and Ireland. This command was obeyed promptly in Dublin and in the chief cities in Ireland. In Kilkenny, Lord Mountgarrett and Sir Richard Howth ordered that a mass of thanksgiving should be celebrated, and when Bale refused to allow such idolatry, they informed the clergy that they were no longer bound to obey the bishop. Mary was proclaimed in Kilkenny, 20th August, and on the following day the clergy and people took possession of the Cathedral of St. Canice. Crowds of the citizens proceeded to attack the palace of the bishop, so that it was only with the greatest difficulty that the mayor of Kilkenny was able to save his life by sending him to Dublin at night, under the protection of an armed escort. From Dublin, Bale succeeded in making his escape to Holland, from which he proceeded to Basel, where he spent his time in libeling the Catholic religion and the Irish clergy and people. Shortly after the coronation of Queen Mary, Sir Thomas St. Ledger was sent over to Ireland as deputy, with instructions that he was to take steps immediately for the complete restoration of the Catholic religion. Primate Dowdle was recalled from exile and restored to a see of Armagh. The primacy, which had been taken from Armagh in the previous reign, owing to the hostile attitude adopted by Dowdle towards the religious innovations, was restored, and various grants were made to him to compensate for the losses he had sustained. In April 1554, a royal commission was issued to Dowdle and William Walsh, formerly prior of the Cistercian Abbey at Bective, to remove the clergy who had married from their benefices. In virtue of this commission, Brown of Dublin, Staples of Meath, Thomas Lancaster of Kildare, and Travers, who had been intruded into the See of Leland, were removed. Bale of Ossory had fled already, and Casey of Limerick also succeeded in making his escape. O'Servalin of Clogger, who had been deposed by the Pope, was driven from his diocese, and an inquiry was set on foot at Lambeth Palace before Cardinal Pole to determine who was the lawful Archbishop of Tuam. Christopher Bodkin, Bishop of Kilmacdua, had been appointed to Tuam by the King in 1536, while two years later Arthur O'Frigal, a canon of Rapo, received the same seat by papal provision. At the inquiry before Cardinal Pole, it was proved that though Bodkin had contracted the guilt of schism, he had done so more from fear than from conviction, that he had been always a stern opponent of heresy, and that in the city and diocese of Tuam the new opinions had made no progress. Apparently, as a result of the inquiry, an agreement was arranged whereby Bodkin was allowed to retain possession of Tuam. The other bishops were allowed to retain their sees without objection, a clear proof that their orthodoxy was unquestionable. In place of those who had been deposed, Hugh Kerwin, an Englishman, was appointed to Dublin, William Walsh, one of the royal commissioners, to Meath, Thomas Leverus, a former tutor of the young Garrett Fitzgerald, to Kildare, Thomas O'Fihill, an Augustinian hermit, to Leland, and John O'Tonnery, a canon regular of St. Augustine, to Ossory, while John Quinn of Limerick, 
who had been forced to resign the see of limerick during the reign of edward the sixth was apparently restored the selection of Curwen to fill the archiepiscopal see of dublin was particularly unfortunate however learned he might have been or however distinguished his ancestry he was not remarkable for the fixity of his religious principles during the reign of henry the eighth he had acquired notoriety by his public defence of the royal divorce as well as by his attacks on papal supremacy though like henry he was a strong upholder of the real presence of christ in the eucharist and of transubstantiation like a true courtier he changed his opinions immediately on the accession of queen mary and he was rewarded by being promoted to dublin and appointed lord chancellor of ireland fifteen fifty five the cathedral chapter of st patrick's that had been suppressed was restored to its pristine state new dignitaries and canons were appointed and much of the possessions that had been seized were returned the mass and catholic ceremonies were restored without any opposition in those churches in dublin and leinster into which the english service had been introduced a provincial synod was held in dublin by the new archbishop fifteen fifty six to wipe out all traces of heresy and schism primate dowdle had convoked previously a synod of the northern provinces at drogheda to undertake a similar work in this assembly it was laid down that all priests who had attempted to marry during the troubles of the previous reign should be deprived of their benefices and suspended that the clergy who had adopted the heretical rites in the religious celebrations and in the administration of the sacraments should be admitted to pardon in case they repented of their crimes and could prove that their fall was due to fear rather than conviction that all the ancient rites and ceremonies of the church in regard to crosses images candles thuribles canonical hours mass the administration of the sacraments fast days holy days holy water and blessed bread should be restored that the book of common prayer etc should be burned and that the primate and the bishops of the province should appoint inquisitors in each diocese to whom the clergy should denounce those who refused to follow the catholic worship and ceremonies arrangements were also made to put an end to abuses in connection with the bestowal of benefices on laymen and children with the appointment of clerics to parishes and dignities by the holy see on the untrustworthy recommendation of local noblemen with the excessive fees charged by some of the clergy with the neglect of those whose duty it was to contribute to repairs of the parish churches and with the failure of some priests to wear a becoming clerical dress in july fifteen fifty six lord fitzwalter was sent to ireland as deputy our said deputy and council according to the royal instructions shall by their own good example and all other good means to them possible advance the honour of almighty god the true catholic faith and religion now by god's great goodness and special grace recovered in our realms of england and ireland and namely they shall set forth the honour and dignity of the pope's holiness and apostolic see of rome and from time to time be ready with our aid and secular force at the request of all spiritual ministers and ordinaries there to punish and repress all heretics and lollards and their damnable sects opinions and errors they were commanded too to assist the commissioners and officials whom cardinal pole as papal legate intended to send shortly to make a visitation of the clergy and people of ireland on the arrival of the new deputy in dublin he went in state to christ church to assist at mass after the celebration of which he received the sword of state from his predecessor before the altar and took the oath in presence of the archbishop that done the trumpets sounded and drums beat and then the lord deputy kneeled down before the altar until the te deum was ended the new deputy was instructed to take measures for summoning a meeting of parliament in the following year 
to give legal sanction to the restoration of the Catholic religion, and to deal with the ecclesiastical property that had been seized. Possibly, in the hope of securing some of these again for the Church, a commission was issued to the Archbishop of Dublin, the Bishop of Kildare, and a number of clerics and laymen, to inquire concerning the chalices, crosses, ornaments, bells, and other property belonging to the parish churches or chapels, in the country of the city and county of Dublin, and of sales made thereof to any person or persons, the price, in whose hands they then remained, and also in whose possession were the houses, lands, and tenements belonging to those churches. Similar commissions were issued to others for the counties of Drogheda and Louth, Kildare, Carlow, Wexford, Kilkenny, Meath, Westmeath, Waterford, Tipperary, Limerick, Cork, and for the county of Connaught. In June 1557 the Irish Parliament met. A bull of absolution from the penalties of heresy and schism was read by the Archbishop of Dublin on bended knees, while the Lord Deputy, officials, and members, both peers and commoners, knelt around him. When this ceremony was finished, all retired to the cathedral where the Te Deum was sung in thanksgiving, and all pledged themselves as a sign of their sincere repentance to abolish all the laws that had been passed against the Holy See. The acts prejudicial to the rights of the Pope enacted since the year 1529 were abolished. The title of supreme head of the Church, it was declared, never was or could be justly or lawfully attributed or acknowledged to any king or sovereign governor, nor in any wise could or might rightly, justly or lawfully, by the king or sovereign governor of the same realms, be claimed, challenged, or used. All bulls, dispensations, and privileges obtained before the year 1529 or at any time since, or which shall hereafter be obtained from the see of Rome, not containing matter contrary or prejudicial to the authority, dignity, or preeminence, royal or imperial, of these said realms, or to the laws of this realm, were allowed to be put in execution, used, and alleged in any civil court in Ireland and elsewhere. The jurisdiction of the bishops was restored. The laws against heresy passed in the reign of Richard II and Edward IV were renewed, and the payments of first fruits was suppressed. Care was taken, however, to avail of the dispensation granted by the Holy See, whereby those who had obtained possession of the property of churches and monasteries should not be disturbed, although it was enacted that none of the laymen who had obtained such grants could plead the rights of exemption enjoyed by some of their former owners against the jurisdiction of the bishops, and that notwithstanding the statutes of Mortmain, those who then held manors, tenements, personages, tithes, pensions, or other hereditaments, might bequeath or devise them to any spiritual body, corporate in the kingdom, such clause to have the force of law for twenty years. From no quarter was the slightest opposition offered to the restoration of Catholic worship, and consequently there was no need to have recourse to persecution. There was no persecution of the Protestants of Ireland by fire or torture during this reign. In truth, the Reformation, not having been sown in Ireland, there was no occasion to water it by the blood of martyrs, insomuch that several English families, friends to the Reformation, withdrew into Ireland as into a secure asylum, where they enjoyed their opinions and worship in privacy without notice or molestation. Yet in spite of this tolerant attitude of both the officials and people of Ireland, an absurd story, first mentioned in a pamphlet printed in 1681, is still to be found in many books dealing with Mary's reign. According to this story, the Queen appointed a body of commissioners to undertake a wholesale persecution in Ireland, and she entrusted this document to one of the commissioners, a certain Dr. Cole. On his way to Ireland, the latter tarried at Chester, where he was waited upon by the mayor, to whom he confided the object of his mission. 
the landlady of the inn having overheard the conversation succeeded in stealing the commission and replacing it by a pack of cards dr cole reached dublin and hastened to meet the lord deputy in council after he had made a speech relating upon what account he came over he presents the box unto the lord deputy who causing it to be opened that the secretary might read the commission there was nothing but a pack of cards with the knave of clubs uppermost dr cole assured them that he had a commission but knew not how it was gone then the lord deputy made answer let us have another commission and we will shuffle the cards in the meanwhile the messenger returned promptly to england and coming to the court obtained another commission but staying for a wind at the waterside news came unto him that the queen was dead and thus god preserved the protestants of ireland this ridiculous fabrication was first referred to in a pamphlet written by that well-known forger robert ware in sixteen eighty one and was reprinted in his life of archbishop brown seventeen o five its acceptance by later writers in spite of its obvious silliness and unsupported as it is by the official documents of the period or by any contemporary authority can be explained only by their religious prejudices but though mary restored the mass and reasserted the jurisdiction of the pope her political policy in ireland differed little from that of her father or her brother she was as determined as had been henry the eighth to bring the country under english law and to increase thereby the resources of the treasury it is true that she allowed the young garrett fitzgerald who had found a refuge in rome to return to the country that she restored him to his estates and honoured him with a seat at the privy council brian o'connor of offaly was also released from prison and allowed to revisit his territories during the time st leger held office he followed the old policy of strengthening english influence by conciliation rather than by force but the earl of sussex was of a different mind he marshalled his forces and made raids into the irish districts for the princes and inhabitants of which he entertained the most supreme contempt it was during the reign of mary that the plan of the english plantations was first put into force by the removal of the native irish from large portions of leeks and offaly to make room for english settlers and yet in spite of the warlike expeditions of sussex the country went from bad to worse so that primate dowdle could write to the privy council in england fifteen fifty seven that this poor realm was never in my remembrance in worse case than it is now except the time only that o'neill and o'donnell invaded the english pale and burned a great piece of it the north is as far out of frame as it was before for the scots beareth as great rule as they do wish not only in such lands as they did lately usurp but also in clandeboy the o'moores and o'connors have destroyed and burned leeks and awfully saving certain forts on the death of queen mary in november fifteen fifty eight her sister elizabeth succeeded to the english throne although she had concealed carefully her protestant sympathies and had even professed her sincere attachment to the old religion during the reign of her predecessor most people believed that important changes were pending as soon as news of her early proclamation reached ireland early in december the small knot of officials who had fallen into disgrace during the reign of the late queen hastened to offer their congratulations and to put forward their claims for preferment sir john aylin formerly lord chancellor and chief commissioner for the dissolution of the monasteries wrote to cecil to express his joy at the latter's promotion enclosed a token and reminded him of what he aylin had suffered during the previous five years sir john bagginal ex-governor of leeks and offaly recalled the fact that he had lost heavily and had been obliged to escape to france for resisting papal supremacy he petitioned for a free farm worth fifty pounds a year bishop staples in a letter to cecil 
took pains to point out that he had been deprived of his see on account of his marriage and had incurred the personal enmity of cardinal pole because he resumed to pray for his old masters henry the eighth's soul for some time however no change was made and catholic worship continued even in dublin as in the days of queen mary the lord deputy sussex went to england in december fifteen fifty nine and entrusted the sword of state to the archbishop of dublin and sir henry sidney both of whom took the oath of office before the high altar in christ church after mass had been celebrated in their presence but the strong anti-catholic policy of the new government soon made itself felt in england and though the ministers were more guarded as far as ireland was concerned it was felt that something should be done there to lessen the influence of rome in the instructions issued to the lord deputy july fifteen fifty nine he was told that the deputy and council shall set the service of almighty god before their eyes and the said deputy and all others of that council who be native-born subjects of this realm of england do use the rites and ceremonies which are by law appointed at least in their own houses in the draft instructions as first prepared a further clause was added that others native of that country be not otherwise moved to use the same than with their own contentment they shall be disposed neither therein doth her majesty mean to judge otherwise of them than well and yet for the better example and edification of prayer in the church it shall be well done if the said counsellors being of that country born shall at times convenient cause either in their own houses or in the churches the litany in the english tongue to be used with the reading of the epistle and gospel in the same tongue and the ten commandments although cecil struck out this clause with his own hand it helps to show that the government feared to push things to extremes in ireland on the return of the earl of sussex he paid the usual official visit in state to christ's church where apparently the english litany probably that prescribed by henry the eighth was sung after the mass in connection with this celebration a story was put in circulation by robert ware in sixteen eighty three that the clergy dissatisfied with the change in liturgy determined to have recourse to a disgraceful imposture to prevent further innovations on the following sunday when the archbishop and deputy assisted at mass one of their number having inserted a sponge soaked in blood into the head of the celebrated statue of the redeemer blood began to trickle over the face of the image suddenly during the service a cry was raised by the trickster and his associates behold our saviour's image sweats blood several of the common people wandering at it fell down with their beads in their hands and prayed to the image while lee who was guilty of deception kept crying out all the time how can he choose but sweat blood whilst heresy is now coming to the church amidst scenes of the greatest excitement the archbishop caused an examination to be made the trick was discovered lee and his accomplices were punished by being made to stand upon a table with their legs and hands tied for three sundays with the crime written upon paper and pinned to their breasts and to complete the story a recent writer adds the protestants were triumphant the roman party confounded and Kerwin's orders to have the statue broken up were obeyed without demur needless to say there is no foundation for such a tale it first saw light in that collection of gross inventions the hunting of the romish fox published by robert ware in sixteen eighty three and is unsupported by any contemporary witnesses it was not known to sir robert ware from whose papers the author pretended to borrow it it was not known to sir dudley loftus who devoted himself to the study of irish history and who as nephew of elizabeth's archbishop of dublin would have had exceptional opportunities of learning the facts 
nor was it known to Archbishop Parker, to whom, according to where, a full account was forwarded immediately. The author of it was employed to stir up feeling in England and Ireland, so as to prevent the accession of James II, and as a cover for his forgeries, he pretended to be using the manuscripts of his father. For so far the Catholic religion was the only one recognized by law in Ireland, and consequently, when Elizabeth instructed the deputy to see that her English-born subjects in Ireland should use the English service in their private houses, she took care to promise that none of them should be impeached or molested for carrying out her commands. But her deputy was instructed to summon a parliament in Ireland, to make such statutes as were lately made in England, mutatis mutandis. The Parliament met in Dublin on the 11th of January, 1560. According to the returns, 76 members, representing several counties and boroughs, were elected. Dublin, Meath, Westmeath, Louth, Kildare, Carlow, Kilkenny, Waterford, Wexford, and Tipperary were the only counties represented, each of them having returned two members. Of the boroughs represented, 17 were situated in Leinster, 8 in Munster, 2 in Athenry, and Galway, in Connaught, and one only, namely, Carrickfergus, was situated in Ulster. Twenty-three temporal peers were summoned to take their seats, all of whom belonged to Anglo-Irish families, except O'Brien of Thomond and MacGillapatrick of Upper Ossery. According to the record preserved in the Rolls Office, three archbishops and seventeen bishops took their seats, the only absentees being Clogger, Derry, Raffoe, Kilmore, Dromore, Clonmacnoise, Achenry, Kilmacdu, Cofenera, and Mayo. Armagh was vacant, primate Dowdle having died in August 1558, and his successor not having been appointed by Rome till February 1560. But for many reasons it is impossible to believe that the twenty bishops mentioned in this list were present at the Dublin Parliament. At best it is only a rather inaccurate count of those who were summoned to take their seats, as is shown by the fact that for seven of the sees no names of the bishops are returned, and that Down and Connor are represented as having sent two bishops, although both sees were united for more than a century. If it be borne in mind that according to the returns in the state paper office, four archbishops and nineteen bishops are represented as having attended the Parliament of 1541, although in his official report to the King the deputy stated expressly that only two archbishops and twelve bishops were present, and also that gross errors have been detected in the list of spiritual peers, supposed to have been in attendance at the Parliaments of 1569 and 1585. It will be obvious to any unprejudiced mind that the return for the Parliament of 1560 cannot be accepted as accurate. No reliable account of the proceedings of the Parliament of 1560 has as yet been discovered. It met on the 11th of January, was adjourned on the following day till the 1st of February, when it was dissolved. It is more probable, however, that it lasted till the 12th of February. According to the Loftus manuscripts, the Parliament was dissolved, by reason of its aversion to the Protestant religion and their ecclesiastical government. At the very beginning of this Parliament, according to another distinguished authority, Her Majesty's well-wishers found that most of the nobility and commons were divided in opinion about the ecclesiastical government, which caused the Earl of Sussex to dissolve them and to go over to England to consult Her Majesty about the affairs of this kingdom. This latter statement is confirmed by the fact that the Earl of Sussex certainly left Ireland in February 1560, and yet, according to the accounts that have come down to us, it was this assembly that gave Protestantism its first legal sanction in Ireland. 
it abolished papal supremacy restored to the queen the full exercise of spiritual jurisdiction as enjoyed by henry the eighth and edward the sixth and joined on all persons holding ecclesiastical or secular offices the oath of royal supremacy under pain of deprivation imposed the penalty of forfeiture of all goods for the first offence on those who spoke in favour of the pope the punishment laid down for premunere in case of a second such offence and death for the third offence and enjoined the use of the book of common prayer in all the churches of the kingdom any clergyman who refused to follow the prescribed form of worship was liable to forfeit one year's revenue and to be sent to prison for the first offence to total deprivation and imprisonment at will for the second and for the third to perpetual imprisonment the laity were obliged to attend the service under threat of excommunication and of a fine of twelve pence to be levied off their goods and chattels by the church wardens the first fruits were restored to the crown and the formality of canonical election of bishops was abolished for the future in case of a vacancy the right of appointment was vested directly in the sovereign in view of the fact that the cities and counties from which the members were returned resisted stubbornly the introduction of the english service that most of the lay peers clung tenaciously to the mass some of them like the earl of kildare being charged with this crime a few months after the dissolution of parliament and that the bishops with one or two exceptions opposed the change the wonder is how such measures could have received the sanction of parliament according to a well-supported tradition they reached the statute book only by fraud having been rushed through on a holiday on which most of the members thought that no session would be held later on when objection was taken to such a method the deputy it is said silenced the resistors by assuring them that they were mere formalities which must remain a dead letter it is sometimes said that the irish bishops of the period acknowledged elizabeth's title of supreme governor in spirituals and abandoned the mass for the book of common prayer nothing however could be farther from the truth with the single exception of Kerwin from whom nothing better could have been expected considering his past variations it cannot be proved for certain that any of the bishops proved disloyal to their trust there is some ground for suspicion in case of christopher bodkin of tuam and thomas ophiel both of whom were represented as having taken the oath but the strong recommendation of the former to the holy see by the jesuit father david wolf and the fact that the latter is consistently passed over by contemporary writers in their enumeration of the protestant bishops show clearly that their lapse if lapse there might have been was more or less involuntary the fact that some of the bishops as for example roland fitzgerald of cashel lacy of limerick walsh of waterford de burgo of clonfort Devereux of Ferns, Ophiho of Leyland, and Bodkin of Tuam were appointed on government commissions, does not prove that they had ceased to be Catholics, just as the appointment of Brown on a similar commission during the reign of Queen Mary does not prove that he had ceased to be a Protestant. That the Irish bishops remained true to the faith is clear from some of the official papers of the period. In 1564, two of the commissioners, who had been appointed to enforce the acts of royal supremacy and uniformity of worship, reported that there were only two worthy bishops in ireland namely adam loftus who had been intruded into armagh but who dared not visit his diocese and brady who had been appointed by the queen to meath the rest of the bishops they say are all irish we need say no more in the following year it was announced that kerwin of dublin loftus and brady were the only bishops zealous in setting forth god's glory in the true christian religion and in 1566 sir henry sidney reported that with the exception of loftus and brady he found none others willing to reform their clergy or to teach any wholesome doctrine or to serve their country or commonwealth as magistrates 
in a document drawn up by one of cecil's spies in fifteen seventy one the bishops of the province of Armagh, cashel and tuam are all described as catholici et confederati while in the province of dublin loftus daly cavanagh and gaffney the three latter of whom had been intruded by the queen into kildare leyland and ossory are described as protestants as is also Deverell of ferns about whose orthodoxy there may be some doubt though unfortunately there can be very little about his evil life hardly had the acts of royal supremacy and uniformity been passed when a commission was addressed to a number of judges and officials to administer the oath of supremacy of the bishops within the sphere of english jurisdiction at this period Kerwin had already given his adhesion to these measures william walsh of meath promptly refused as did also thomas leverus of kildare february fifteen sixty later on when the lord deputy returned from london another attempt was made to induce these bishops to change their minds but without success in reply to the deputy the bishop of kildare declared that all jurisdiction was derived from christ and since christ did not deem it right to confer spiritual authority on women not even on his own blessed mother how he asked could it be believed that the queen of england was the supreme governor of the church thereupon the deputy threatened him with deprivation and the consequent loss of his revenues unless he made a submission but the bishop reminded him of the words of sacred scripture what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world if he suffer the loss of his own soul he was driven from the sea and for a time taught a private school in the county limerick but he returned to his diocese where he died near nass fifteen seventy seven the bishop of meath continued to oppose the religious policy of the government in fifteen sixty five he was summoned once more by the commissioners but he openly protested before all the people the same day that he would never communicate or be present where the service should be administered for it was against his conscience and against god's word as he was a man of great credit among his countrymen upon whom in causes of religion they wholly depend he was thrown into prison where he languished in great suffering till fifteen seventy two when he contrived to make his escape to france later on funds were supplied by the holy see to enable him to continue his journey to spain he died amongst his brethren the cistercians at alcala in fifteen seventy seven john o'tonary too who had been appointed to ossory after the precipitate flight of bale seems to have given offence to the government though the latter preferred to devote himself to historical studies after the accession of elizabeth rather than to entrust himself to the tender mercies of the people of kilkenny his rival does not seem to have been regarded by the government as a lawful bishop of ossory his name does appear on the list of ecclesiastical commissioners appointed in fifteen sixty four but this seems to have been a mistake on the part of the officials or possibly a bait thrown out to induce o'tonary to make his submission at any rate it is certain that in fifteen sixty one the bishopric of ossory was returned as vacant and it was suggested that the appointment should be conferred on the dean of kilkenny and in july fifteen sixty five before the death of o'tonary and the instructions drawn up for sir henry sidney and corrected by cecil her majesty is made to say that the bishopric of ossory has been long vacant as this can refer only to the death of bale who died in fifteen sixty three it is clear that o'tonary was bracketed with walsh and leverus as far as elizabeth's ministers are concerned had it been possible for the government to do so similar measures would have been taken against the bishops in the other parts of ireland but faced as it was with shane o'neill in the north and a threatened confederation of the whole geraldine forces in the south it was deemed prudent not to precipitate a crisis by a violent anti-catholic propaganda in those parts of the country not yet subject to english influence 
commissioners were appointed to administer the oath of supremacy to the bishops the judges and higher officials to the justices of the peace etc in kildare fifteen sixty and to the officials in westmeath but unless bishops could be found willing to take the place of those who refused to accept the new laws no progress could be made Kerwin of Dublin, following his old rule of accepting the sovereign's religion as a true one, submitted to the Act of Supremacy and the Act of Uniformity. In accordance with the Queen's instructions, he removed the pictures and statues from Christ's Church and St. Patrick's, blotted out the paintings and frescoes on the walls, so as to cover up all signs of idolatry, and to prepare a background for carefully assorted scriptural texts. He was not, however, happy in his new position. He petitioned to be transferred from Dublin to Hereford, basing his claim on the fact that he was the man that of his coat hath surliest stood to the crown, either in England or Ireland. But his petition was not granted. Two years later Adam Loftus, who though nominally Archbishop of Armagh, feared to visit his diocese, charged Curran with serious crimes, which he was ashamed to particularize, and probably as a result of this the Queen instructed her deputy to induce him to resign on the promise of an annual pension of two hundred pounds. 1563. But Kerwin, fearing that the leaving of the archbishopric and not receiving another might lead people to believe that he was deprived, stood out boldly for better terms. Hugh Brady, the Queen's Bishop of Meath, then proceeded to attack him. According to him, everybody in Dublin, from the archbishop to the petty canons, were dumb dogs, living enemies to the truth, neither teaching nor feeding any save themselves, and disguised dissimilars. As this did not produce any effect, he wrote once more, demanding that the authorities should call home the old unprofitable workmen, a petition in which he was supported by Adam Loftus. Their prayers were heard at last, and Kerwin was translated to Oxford. When the news of his recall was announced to him, he merely expressed the wish that he could get the last half-year's rent of the bishopric of Oxford, and that he should be allowed to change quickly so that he might provide fire for the winter and hay for his horses. The see of Armagh, which was vacant by the death of Primate Dowdle, was conferred by the Pope on Don at Otige, February 1560. The latter was consecrated at Rome, and arrived in Ireland probably towards the end of the same year. In the summer of 1561 he was present at Armagh with the army of Shane O'Neill, whom he encouraged to go forward boldly against the forces of the deputy. Needless to say, such a primate was not acceptable to Elizabeth, who determined to appoint one Adam Loftus, then a chaplain to the Earl of Sussex. Loftus was a young man only twenty-eight years of age, who had made a favourable impression on the Queen, as well by his beauty as by his learning. Letters were dispatched immediately to the chapter of Armagh, commanding the canons to elect him, but as they refused to obey the order, nothing remained except to appoint him by letters patent. 1562. As he dare not visit the greater part of his diocese, he applied for and received the deanship of St. Patrick's, Dublin, and about the same time he became a suitor for his brother, that he might get the rectory of Dunboyne. In 1563 Elizabeth thought of changing him to Kildare, and in 1566 the deputy recommended him for Meath, believing that he would thankfully receive the exchange, and willingly embase his estate to increase so much his revenue but Loftus had set his heart on securing the Archbishopric of Dublin. Time and again he made the most damaging charges against Kerwin, so as to secure his removal, although when the removal was arranged he learned to his surprise that the authorities intended to promote not himself but his fellow-laborer, Hugh Brady of Meath. 
in april fifteen sixty six when he thought that brady had no chance of succeeding to dublin he had recommended him for the appointment but in september when he learned that there was danger of his recommendation being followed he wrote to warren cecil that if it would please his honour to pause a while he could show such matter as he would except it were for the church of god's sake be loath to utter by any means but least of all by writing upon knowledge whereof the matter he knows should go no further brady having learned that loftus had gone to england wrote to cecil to put him on his guard against believing any charges against him that might be made by the primate he returned in november without having succeeded only to find that shane o'neill had overrun his diocese so that it was not worth more than twenty pounds a year he petitioned to be allowed to resign for he said neither is it armagh worth anything to me nor am i able to do any good in it for that altogether it lieth among the irish at last in fifteen sixty seven his wishes were granted and he became archbishop of dublin but he was still dissatisfied as the diocese according to him was worth only four hundred pounds irish a year over thirty thousand pounds and had only two hundred and forty acres of mensal land he insisted that he should be allowed to hold with it the deanship of st patrick's a request however that was refused peremptorily by the queen in dublin he continued the same policy of grabbing everything for himself his relatives and dependents until at last the chapter weary of his importunities obliged him to promise not to ask for anything more fortunately his guarantee was entered in the records as he appeared soon again to solicit one last favour in place of dr walsh of meath who refused to take the oath of supremacy hugh brady was appointed fifteen sixty three in his letter to cecil he complained that the payment of his fees and the expenses of the consecration would beggar him that he was opposed by both the clergy and laity of his diocese in such a stubborn way that he would rather be a stipendiary priest in england than bishop of meath in ireland and that unless her majesty pardoned the debts she was claiming he must lose all hope as he was very poor and obliged to entertain right royally for these people he wrote will have the one or the other i mean they will either eat my meat and drink or else myself the relations existing between loftus of armagh and the bishop of meath were of the most strained kind when brady learned that loftus had been made dean of st patrick's he addressed an indignant protest to cecil but as both loftus and himself aspired to become archbishop of dublin both united to attack Kerwin so as to secure his removal grave charges were made by loftus against brady in fifteen sixty six but once he had attained the object of his desires namely his promotion to dublin he had no scruple in attaching his name to a very laudatory commendation of brady's labours and qualifications fifteen sixty seven a certain dr craik was appointed by elizabeth to kildare in opposition to dr Leverus. the new bishop was far from being content with the honour that had been conferred upon him writing to his patron lord robert dudley he complained that he was in continual and daily torment owing to the fact that he was bishop in a diocese where he could neither preach to the people nor could the people understand and where he had no one to assist him he succeeded in securing for himself the deanship of st patrick's in dublin and was a strong suitor for the bishopric of meath not content with his revenues he sold most of the episcopal lands in kildare so that he reduced the diocese to a most shameful state of poverty finally he went over to england to petition the queen for a remission of his fees but he was thrown into the marshalsea prison from which he was released only a few months before his death 
Donald Cavanaugh was appointed by the Queen to Leyland, 1567, where he devoted himself principally to enriching himself by disposing of the diocesan property, and John Devereux, who, according to Loftus, was most unfit, owing to the fact that he had been deprived of the deanship of Ferns for confessed whoredom, was appointed Bishop of Ferns, 1566. With men such as these in charge of the new religious movement, it was almost impossible that it could succeed. In spite of the various royal commissions appointed between the years 1560 and 1564 to secure submission to the acts of supremacy and uniformity, the people still clung tenaciously to the old faith. Though Elizabeth and her advisers were anxious to destroy the Catholic religion in Ireland, they deemed it imprudent to do so immediately in view of the threatening attitude of O'Neill and of several of the other Irish and Anglo-Irish nobles. In case of the Act of Uniformity, it had been laid down expressly that in places where the people did not understand Irish, the service might be read in Latin, and as not even the people in Kildare knew English at this time, it followed that outside of Dublin the Book of Common Prayer was not obligatory. Indeed, outside Dublin, Meath, Kildare, and portion of Armagh, very little attempt seems to have been made to put these laws into execution. From the draft instructions drawn up for Sir Henry Sidney in 1565, it is perfectly clear that outside the Pale Territory, zealous measures had not been taken to enforce the new doctrines, and that even within the Pale, the authorities were not inclined to press matters to extremes. In the various agreements concluded between Shane O'Neill and Elizabeth, O'Neill was not called upon to renounce the Pope. It was thought to be much more prudent to pursue a policy of toleration until the English power could be placed upon a sound footing, and that if this were once accomplished, the religious question could be settled without much difficulty. Although the Lord Deputy was empowered to punish those who refused to attend the English service by imprisonment, 1561, he was obliged to report in the following year that the people were without discipline and utterly devoid of religion that they came to divine service as to a may-game, that the ministers were held in contempt on account of their greediness and want of qualifications, the wise fear more the impiety of the licentious professors than the superstition of their erroneous papists, and that nothing less than the parliamentary decree rigorously enforced could remedy the evil. The commissioners who had been appointed to enforce the religious innovations reported in 1564 that the people were so addicted to their old superstitions that they could not be induced to hear the new gospel, that the judges and lawyers, however, had promised to enforce the laws, that they had cautioned them not to interfere with the simple multitude at first, but only with one or two boasting masked men in every shire, and that with the exception of Kerwin, Loftus, and Brady, all the rest of the bishops were Irish, about whom it was not necessary to say anything more. In a document presented to the Privy Council in England by the Lord Deputy and Council of Ireland, 1566, a good account is given of the progress and results of the so-called Reformation. They reported that Kerwin, Loftus, and Brady were diligent in their pastoral office, but that, howbeit it, the work, goeth slowly forward within their said three dioceses, by reason of the former errors and superstitions, inveterated and leavened in the people's hearts, and in, on account of, want of livings sufficient for fit entertainment of well-chosen and learned curates amongst them, for that these livings of cure, being most part appropriated benefices in the Queen's Majesty's possession, are let by leases to farmers, with allowance or reservation of very small stipends or entertainments for the vicars or curates, besides the decay of the chancels, and also of the churches universally in ruins, and some wholly down. 
and out of their said diocese the remote parts of munster connaught and other irish countries and borders thereof order cannot yet so well be taken with the residue till the countries be first brought into more civil and dutiful obedience in dublin where it might be expected that the government could enforce its decrees the people refused to conform and even in fifteen sixty five after several commissions had finished their labours it was admitted that the canons and clergy of st patrick's were still papists from meath the queen's bishop received such a bad reception that he declared he would much rather have been a stipendiary priest in england than bishop of meath oh what a sea of trouble he wrote have i entered into storms rising on every side the ungodly lawyers are not only sworn enemies to the truth but also for the lack of due execution of law the overthrowers of the country the ragged clergy are stubborn and ignorantly blind so as there is left little hope of their amendment the simple multitude is through continual ignorance hardly to be won so as i find angustiae undique but while brady was involved in a sea of difficulties the catholics of meath rallied round their lawful bishop dr walsh according to the report of loftus who ordered his arrest fifteen sixty five he was one of great credit amongst his countrymen and upon whom as touching causes of religion they wholly depended loftus petitioned to be recalled from armagh because it was not worth anything to him nor was he able to do any good in it since it lay among the irish and craik who was appointed to kildare announced that he could not address the people because they were not acquainted with the english language nor had he any irish clergyman who would assist him in spreading the new gospel in fifteen sixty four several bodies of commissioners were appointed to visit certain portions of leinster munster and connaught to enforce the acts of supremacy and uniformity and about the same time a royal proclamation was issued enforcing the fine of twelve pence for each offence on those who refused to attend protestant service on sundays and holy days whether these commissioners acted or not is not clear but undoubtedly the commissioners appointed for the pale made a serious attempt to carry out their instructions they brought together juries chosen out of the parishes situated within the sphere of english influence and upon the return of their several verdicts they found many and great offences committed against her majesty's laws and proceedings but among all their presentiments they brought nothing against the nobility and chief gentlemen who yet have contemned her majesty's most godly laws and proceedings more manifestly than any of the rest and therefore they determined to call them before them and to minister to them certain articles unto which they required the nobility to answer upon their honours and duty without oath the rest of the gentlemen answered upon their oaths and when they brought their several answers they found by their own confession that the most part of them had continually since the last parliament frequented the mass and other services and ceremonies inhibited by her majesty's laws and injunctions and that very few of them ever received the holy communion or used such kind of public prayer and service as is presently established by law whereupon loftus added i was once in mind for that they be so linked together in friendship and alliance one with another that we shall never be able to correct them by the ordinary course of the statute to assess upon every one of them according to the quality of their several offences a good round sum of money to be paid to your majesty's use and to bind them in sure bonds and recognizances ever hereafter dutifully to observe your majesty's most godly laws and injunctions but for that they be the nobility and chief gentlemen of the english pale and the greatest number too i thought fit not to deal any further with them until your majesty's pleasure were therein especially known 
so long as her majesty required the noblemen of the pale to fight against shane o'neill and the other irish chieftains she was too prudent to insist on strict acceptance of her religious innovations in fifteen sixty pius the fourth determined to send a special commissary into ireland in the person of the irish jesuit father david wolfe who was a native of limerick highly recommended to the holy see by the general of the society the commissary was instructed to visit and encourage the bishops clergy and chief noblemen of the country to stand firm he was to draw up lists of suitable candidates for bishoprics to reorganize some of the religious houses and hospitals and to establish grammar schools where the youth of the country might receive a sound education he left rome in august fifteen sixty and arrived in cork in january fifteen sixty one according to his report the people flocked to him in thousands to listen to his sermons to get absolution and to procure the revalidation of invalid marriages for so far he was able to assure the roman authorities heresy had made no progress among the masses from cork he went to limerick and from limerick he journeyed through connaught during the course of this journey he learned a great deal that was favourable about bodkin the archbishop of tomb and roland de burgo of clonfort he visited the greater part of the country with the exception of the pale and as he found it impossible to go there he empowered one of the priests to absolve from reserved cases particularly from the crimes of heresy and schism in 1568 he was arrested and thrown into prison together with archbishop cree of armagh pius v instructed his nuncio in spain to request the good offices of philip ii to procure their release but apparently the representations of the spanish government were without effect in 1572 however father wolf succeeded in making his escape from prison and before setting sail for spain he had the happiness of receiving the humble submission of william casey who had been promoted to the see of limerick by edward the sixth from tarbet the papal commissary sailed for spain later on he returned once more to ireland and was active in assisting james Fitzmaurice. he is supposed to have died in spain in fifteen seventy eight or fifteen seventy nine father wolf had been instructed specially to recommend to the holy see those priests whom he deemed qualified for appointment to vacant bishoprics this was a matter of essential importance and as such he devoted to it his particular care thomas o'hurley was appointed to ross fifteen sixty one don or mcgongale the companion of his journeys was appointed to raffo fifteen sixty two the Dominicans O'Hart and O'Crean were provided to the sees of Achenry and Elphin in the same year at his request, and during the time he remained in Ireland his advice with regard to episcopal nominations was followed as a rule. He was instructed also to establish grammar schools throughout the country, and he was not long in Ireland till he realized the necessity of doing something for education, and above all for the education of candidates for the priesthood in fifteen sixty four he obtained from pius the fourth the bull dum exquisita empowering himself and the archbishop of armagh to erect colleges and universities in ireland on the model and with all the privileges of the universities of paris and louvain for this purpose they were empowered to apply the revenues of monasteries and of benefices and to make use of the ecclesiastical property generally unfortunately owing to the disturbed condition of the country and the subsequent arrest of both the archbishop and the papal commissary it was impossible to carry out this scheme in the earlier sessions of the council of trent the archbishop of armagh had taken a leading part when the council opened for its final sessions in january fifteen sixty two 
Ireland was represented by O'Hurlihy of Ross, McCongale of Raffo, and O'Hart of Achenry. Nor were these mere idle spectators of the proceedings. They joined in the warm discussions that took place regarding the sacrifice of the Mass, communion under both kinds, the source of Episcopal jurisdiction, and of the Episcopal obligation of residence, the erection of seminaries, and the matrimonial impediments. It is said that it was mainly owing to their exertions that the impediment of spiritual relationship was retained. After their return, attempts were made to convoke provincial synods to promulgate the decrees of the Council of Trent. In 1566, apparently some of the prelates of Connaught assembled and proclaimed them in the province of Tuam. In 1587, the bishops of Clogger, Derry, Raffo, Down and Connor, Ardal, Kilmore, and Achenry, together with a large number of clergy, met in the diocese of Clogger for a similar purpose, and in 1614 they were proclaimed for the province of Dublin by a synod convoked at Kilkenny. In 1560, and for several years after, the state of affairs in Ireland was so threatening that Elizabeth and her advisers were more concerned about maintaining a foothold in the country than about the abolition of the mass. In the north, Shane O'Neill had succeeded on the death of his father, 1559, and seemed determined to vindicate for himself to the fullest the rights of the O'Neill over the entire province of Ulster. The Earl of Kildare refused to abandon the mass, and was in close correspondence both with his kinsman the earl of desmond and with several of the irish chieftains it was feared that a great catholic confederation might be formed against elizabeth and that scotland france spain and the pope might be induced to lend their aid instructions were therefore issued to the lord deputy to induce the earl of kildare to come to london where he could be detained and to stir up the minor princes of ulster to weaken the power of o'neill but attaining men like the earls of kildare desmond and ormond in london by stirring up rivalries and dissensions amongst irishmen and above all by getting possession of the children of both the anglo-irish and irish nobles and bringing them to england for their education it was hoped that ireland might be both anglicized and protestantized the most urgent question however was the reduction of shane o'neill at first elizabeth was inclined to come to terms with him but the earl of sussex in the hope of overcoming him by force had him proclaimed a traitor and advanced against him with a large force fifteen sixty one he seized armagh took possession of the cathedral and converted it into a strong fortress o'neill soon appeared accompanied by the lawful archbishop who exhorted the irish troops to withstand the invader the english army suffered a bad defeat and after the failure of several attempts to reduce O'Neill by force, the deputy determined to try other methods. He hired an individual named Neil Gray to murder O'Neill, and acquainted Elizabeth with what he had done. But O'Neill was fortunate enough to elude the assassination. At length O'Neill was induced to go to England, 1562, where he was forced to agree to certain terms but as he discovered that he had been deceived throughout the entire negotiations he felt free on his return to assert his claims to ulster elizabeth was not unwilling to yield to nearly all his demands even to the extent of removing loftus from the archbishopric of armagh and allowing the appointment of o'neill's own nominee the earl of sussex however was opposed to peace having been forced against his will to come to terms with o'neill fifteen sixty three he determined to have recourse once more to the method of assassination a present of poisoned wine was sent to o'neill by the deputy as a token of his good will and it was only by a happy chance that o'neill and his friends were not done to death 
the new deputy sir henry sidney succeeded in stirring up o'donnell and the other ulster princes against o'neill by promising them the protection of england having been defeated in battle by o'donnell in fifteen sixty seven shane fled for aid to the scots of antrim on whom he had inflicted more than one severe defeat and while with them he was set upon and slain by his disappearance the power of the irish in ulster was broken and the way was at last prepared for subduing the northern portion of ireland in the south of ireland the young earl of desmond was in a particularly strong position but unfortunately he was personally weak and vacillating and by playing off the earl of ormond against him elizabeth was able to keep him in subjection to england to use him against shane o'neill and to prevent him from taking part in a national or religious confederation in fifteen sixty seven the earl was arrested and sent to london where he was detained as a prisoner although the lord deputy allowed himself to be received at limerick by bishop lacy with full catholic ceremonial still the appointment of protestant commissioners to administer the territories of desmond and the intrusion of a queen's archbishop into the see of cashel fifteen sixty seven made it clear that the government was determined to force the new religion on the people about the same time the pope took steps to strengthen the catholics of munster by appointing maurice fitzgibbon commendatory abbot of a cistercian monastery in mayo to the vacant see of cashel the new archbishop was in close correspondence with the desmond party in ireland and with philip the second of spain on his arrival in ireland fifteen sixty nine he found that james fitzmaurice the cousin of the earl of desmond was organizing a confederation to defend the catholic religion mccarthy moore the o'briens of thomond the sons of the earl of clanrickard and sir edmund butler had promised their assistance the new archbishop came to cashel took possession of his cathedral in spite of the presence of the royal intruder and even went so far as to force the latter to attend a solemn mass in the cathedral this is the only foundation for the story that he suffered personal violence to mccogwell or that he captured him and brought him a prisoner to spain the earl of sydney mustered his forces to proceed against the rebels and the earl of ormond was sent over from england to detach his brother sir edmund butler from his alliance with the desmonds the archbishop of cashel was dispatched into spain to seek the assistance of philip the second fifteen sixty nine and he brought with him a document purporting to be signed by thirteen archbishops and bishops and by most of the leading irish and anglo-irish nobles in leinster munster and connaught asking the king of spain to assist them in their defence of the catholic religion and offering to accept as their sovereign any spanish or burgundian prince whom philip the second might wish to nominate the fact that the pope had published in february fifteen seventy the bull regnans and excelsis announcing the excommunication and deposition of queen elizabeth served to encourage the catholics of munster but notwithstanding this sentence the archbishop failed to obtain any effective assistance either from spain or from the pope undaunted by the ill success of his agent fitzmaurice issued a proclamation addressed to the prelates princes and lords of ireland announcing that he had taken up arms against the heretical ruler who had been excommunicated and deposed by the pope that a large body of english catholics were in rebellion or ready to rise that he had been appointed by the pope captain-general of the irish catholic forces and that it behooved them to rally to his standard to defend the catholic faith to suppress all false teachers and schismatical services and to deliver their country from heresy and tyranny fitzmaurice was however disappointed in his hopes the earl of ormond hastened over to ireland to hold the butler territories for the queen 
many of his confederates deserted him or were overthrown and after a long struggle he was overcome and obliged to make his submission fifteen seventy three to seventy four end of chapter nine part one